0: Is it acceptable for a person who's in Christ Jesus to hate anything? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on Bible Study starting now. $10 was. <laughs> and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Tuesday, October the 19th of 2010. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, hope you don't mind that we're doing this on a Tuesday. Uh, yesterday just kind of slipped away from me. Got pretty busy with some stuff yesterday, but uh, yeah, Tuesday's an okay day for, for doing these too. Uh, Before we get started, uh, first of all, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be doing uh, verse 9 today, so if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 12 verse 9 is where we're going to start, so go ahead and turn there, we'll get started here in just a minute. But I wanted to give you guys an update on Caitlin. Uh, The past couple weeks, I've been talking to you guys about her, she's 13 years old, Uh, she's got cancer, and uh, it's just, it's not a pretty situation, it's not looking good. Uh, in terms of her ability to... Um, in, in terms of the outlook of her diagnosis. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to give you guys an update on that. She is out of ICU this week, and she's trying to trying to breathe on her own and everything, which is good. That's That's progress. Last week, things really took a turn for the worse when she developed this tumor in the back of her throat. She's developed another tumor on her neck, which is painful, but it's not... Posing a problem where you know she's not able to breathe or swallow or or something like that, but you know I I imagine that any tumor would be incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly painful, and so uh, yeah, your continued prayers for her would be uh, would be very appreciated. Her name's Caitlin, her mom's name is Amy. They're both going through um, both going through the the valley of the shadow of death right now. So thank you for your continued prayers. And again, if you guys feel like the Lord has put a burden on your heart to support them financially, to, to help them out, because her mom hasn't uh, hasn't been able to bring in any money. She's down there living in the hospital. So if the Lord has put a burden on your heart to support them, uh, go ahead and get in touch with me. You can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com and I can get the, uh, the bank account number for you because there's a bank account set up for Caitlin. It's called Caring for Caitlin. Um, I got an email yesterday from another listener who mentioned that in a, an old lesson from several years ago, I had mentioned something about Ergen Kanner and asked if I still support him and what I think about uh, some recent allegations uh, about him. And yeah, if you get on YouTube right now, you will see that there are some videos that have been put up by Muslims and, you know, skeptics and atheists and so on, kind of just trying to discredit him and uh, maybe showing some contradictions. And I hadn't addressed this with you guys because I didn't remember ever saying anything about Ergen Kanner in a lesson. Uh, I am very familiar with what is going on with him and the allegations that he's facing And basically, I want to leave the decision in your hands. Uh, I will put a link to an article on today's lesson. So if you uh, go to the the lesson for Tuesday, October 19th, 2010, you'll find a link to an article about some of the issues that Ergen Kanner is facing. Uh, Some people are running to his defense, like uh, Dr. Geisler is running to his defense, saying he hasn't done anything wrong. And uh, some people seem to be on the verge of accusing him of, you know, blasphemy, almost. It's uh, like almost like they're headhunting him, uh, and I'm talking about Christians. Uh, I find myself somewhere in between. You know, uh, I, I think he probably did stretch the truth. I think there were probably some instances where uh, he was untruthful, but again, I'm going to leave that in your hands, and you can make the decision for yourself as to whether or not you think um, he's guilty of whatever. So anyway, we've got a lesson to do today. Let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for just the opportunity to take a moment out of our busy days to read your word and to think about what it means for us in our daily lives. Teach us, Lord, to be more like you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's always important to stay mindful of the theme that's being built on when you're reading the Bible, especially when you're reading a book of the Bible that is a logical dissertation. And given the number of therefores (laughs) in this book of, uh, of Romans, I think it's safe to say that this is indeed a logical dissertation. Paul's established every doctrinal truth necessary for the Christian life. And now he's in the middle of moving from telling us that we can please God, now that we're in Christ, to how to please God. What does it mean to be a living and holy sacrifice? What does that mean? I mean, not just in theory, but how does that get played out in our daily lives? How does it get played out in reality? What does a person who's life is a living and holy sacrifice unto God look like? That's the theme that Paul's building on here. Paul started to answer that question in verses 6 through 8 as he talked about how each of us, as followers of Jesus, have been spiritually gifted. And again, this wasn't an exhaustive list. It wasn't intended to be. The point that he was making is that all believers are like a body in that we all have different functions, but we're designed to work together. Once we put our trust for salvation in Jesus and the work that he did, rather than our own works or our own efforts, we all received the same Holy Spirit. And upon receiving the Holy Spirit, each follower of Jesus was given a new purpose in life, to glorify God by filling some specific function in the church. And in accordance with the Holy Spirit's will, each follower of Jesus was therefore given a set of spiritual gifts through which They can fill the function that the Holy Spirit designed them to fill as a new creation in Christ Jesus. But Paul knows how people work, friends. He knows how people work. He knows what the Bible says about the human heart. He's seen the ins and outs of religious institutions. And so, given his background, he's aware of the fact that God isn't as interested with the fact that we're using the gifts that He gave us as He is with the motivating force behind it. Is it ego? Well, it shouldn't be. And Paul already warned us of the importance of having a proper perspective of our identity in Christ back in verse 3. He told us, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. So if it's not ego, what is it? The hunger for power, maybe? Uh, Maybe prestige? Well, honestly, those might be what it is in some churches, and I don't deny that that does happen. But Peter reminded those at the top of church leadership to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's from First Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. See, Paul doesn't leave us wondering about much, right? And here again, he's going to move toward an answer for what should be the motivating factor for our use of our spiritual gifts. So Paul continues writing in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Well, one of the very first things that we should always notice when we're reading in our Bibles, and I hope that uh, that some of you, at least, if you're not driving, uh, are following along in your Bibles. But one of the first things that you should notice when we're reading uh, in our Bibles is italic print, uh, and that's how it does come across in um, in the Bible's print. There should be some italic print there, and that means something. It's supposed to catch your eye, and if you were reading along here, I hope it did catch your eye. Remember. That the italic print, when you see it in the Bible, it indicates that the words in italics aren't actually in the original manuscripts. Rather, they were added by the translators as a means of adding clarity to the text. Oftentimes, it's very much needed for the average uh, student of the Bible, but occasionally, we probably could have squeaked by without it. And this is probably one of those rare times where it wasn't maybe entirely necessary. Maybe. Maybe. Personally, I like to be aware of the fact that something is said in the imperative. And while the words let and be uh, allow this first part of the verse to remain an imperative command, I think it sounds much less optional for us if it simply says love without hypocrisy. That's a more direct and literal translation from the Greek, but if the words let and be add clarity for you, then you know, please don't let my personal preferences get in the way of your clarity. So Paul says, love without hypocrisy. The Apostle John tells us that God not only loves us, but that he is love. The God who is love saw that there was a broken relationship between himself and humanity, and he provided a way for anyone who loves him in return to come to him. Jesus is that way? Whenever we talk about freedom of religion, you know, we have to understand that it basically means, it basically boils down to the belief that someone has the right to pick their own way to go to hell, or that they can choose God's way of bringing them to heaven. That's what freedom of religion reduces to. Under God's way of bringing us to heaven, we were filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, who is fully God and thus shares every attribute that the Father and the Son have, including love. Because that's a central part of his nature. When we're filled with him, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that love also becomes a central part of our new nature, as well. Paul's telling us here to let love be the motivating factor which drives us to use the spiritual gifts we've been given. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss this. Paul's telling us here to let our love be the motivating factor that drives us to use the spiritual gifts that we've been given. Love without hypocrisy. What kind of love is Paul talking about here, by the way? Uh, We should realize that there are different words in Greek for different kinds of love, a distinction that we unfortunately don't make in English. So anytime you see the word love in the Bible, you almost get the sense that something is immediately lost in translation automatically. Well, the Greek word that Paul uses here is agape, which, as many of you probably know, indicates a deep and very affectionate love agape love is the love that jesus uses it's the type of love that he refers to when he tells us that god so loved the world that he gave his only son that's from john 3:16 it's also the word that paul used back in romans chapter 8 verse 39 when he said that nothing will be able to separate us from god's love it's also the type of love that paul is talking about when he spends a whole chapter talking about love in 1st corinthians chapter 13 you see agape love is a selfless love and that's the type of love that Paul is telling us right here in Romans chapter 12 verse 9 that's the type of love that he's telling us should characterize our lives as well did you notice though did you notice that Paul didn't tell us toward whom the agape love should be directed he left that blank and i think he left that blank on purpose undoubtedly because we should love everyone the way that God loves them. If he has, if God has agape love for the world, and John 3.16 tells us that he does, then we, as followers of Christ, should also have agape love for the world. That means that we don't just love the people who love us. We don't just love the people who are easy to love. We don't just love the people who fit any type of mold we might conceive of. Just love without Hypocrisy. Period. And that's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Because that's not part of the flesh nature. That's not something that we're really used to. The unregenerate heart can only experience love when there's something in it for them. But agape love is unconditional. It's selfless. It means that we're capable of feeling and having it even when there's nothing in the world for us to gain by it and maybe there's something for us to lose by it. Hypocrisy, however, is a poison which is so powerful it doesn't take much for it to destroy our credibility. I once illustrated this to a church congregation by calling someone forward and asking them if they'd be willing to drink a glass of water that I had up on the pulpit. And as he was checking out this glass of water, I told him that the water had just the smallest amount of weed killer sprayed into it. It had Roundup sprayed into it. And so then I asked, would you drink it now, even if it was just a a really, really small squirt? Well, he was a smart guy. So he said, no. See, once he was made aware of even the smallest amount of poison in the glass, he wouldn't have drank it if he had been the thirstiest man on the planet, right? And so it is with hypocrisy. Once anyone detects even the smallest trace of it in the life of a Christ follower, they will immediately lose interest in becoming like us. People like to know that they're dealing with someone who's authentic, someone who's genuine. And if we're not genuine, we've poisoned our ability to minister to them. And I'm not saying that it'll never be possible again to minister to them, but we'll spend more time earning back their trust than we did losing it. Love must be. Real love, agape love, must be without hypocrisy. What does it mean to love hypocritically, by the way. What, what does it mean to love with hypocrisy? Well, in Paul's day, the Greek theaters didn't have stage props uh, for plays, for scenery, and they didn't have extravagant costumes either. Instead, what they'd do is the actors would show a mask to the audience. They'd be carrying a mask in their hand, and they'd show it to the audience, which indicated that their character was uh, maybe a hero or a villain um, or, uh, you know, part of a tragedy or part of a comedy. And as the actor walked out on stage, they'd, as they're walking around on the stage, they'd occasionally hold it up to remind the audience of what type of character they were portraying. Well, because this was common in places like Rome, which is Paul's audience here, Paul's audience would have immediately understood that he was talking about people who are what? Playing a role right? If love is simply a mask that we're carrying around, and every now and then we flash it to remind people of who we are, but that's not really what they're seeing. If love is simply a mask that we're wearing, it's fake. Take it off. The follower of Jesus has to be able to love people without playing a role. It has to be a central part of who you are all the time, not just in specific situations where you know it's what you're supposed to be doing, but it's maybe not what you're actually feeling. Pure, unadulterated, unhypocritical love is the key that will open the door to interpersonal relationships in which people can see and experience the love of Christ through you. It's the genuine agape love that flows from Christ through us that'll distinguish our love from the love that people have grown accustomed to seeing and experiencing. So that there's no room for confusion on our part, Paul clarifies, telling us exactly what it is or what it means to love without hypocrisy. He writes, "...abhor what is evil." Now, some translations are going to render this uh, as hate rather than abhor. Either one works. They're both really strong language. Now, some people will tell you that it's wrong for us to hate anything. We should just love everything. Friends, nothing could ever be further from the truth. There's nothing inherently sinful about hating. Whether hatred is sinful or not depends on what we hate. It depends on the object of the hatred. Did you know that the Bible tells us that God hates things? Did you know that? Yeah, it really does. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 to 19. Here we read, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Okay, Solomon, so what are those seven things? Well, he continues, listing off haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Okay, so it's okay for us to hate. As long as we hate the right things. The psalmist instructed, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. That's from Psalm chapter 97, verse 10. In the longest chapter in the Bible, that's Psalm chapter 119, the psalmist writes, I esteem right or correct all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. That's from Psalm 119, verse 128. So are you starting to see a pattern here? We should hate anything which is contrary to God's nature. And if we love God, that is the natural reaction. See, we belong to a God who told us that his very name is the truth. And as such, we should rightfully hate anything which is contrary to God that to the truth. In fact, if you love, it's impossible for you not to hate, because you will hate anything which violates or is contrary to the thing which you love. For example, like this, the more you love truth, the more you will hate falsehood. The more you love God, the more you will hate anything which stands contrary to God. The more you love righteousness, the more you will hate sin. Jesus knew this too, which is why he said the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light. See, they loved the darkness because they hated the light. If they loved the light, they would hate the darkness. That's from John chapter three, verse uh, verses 19 and 20, by the way. See, if we're not being hypocritical, then We have to hate darkness because we love the light. We have to hate evil because we love God. If we show the world that we don't completely hate evil, but that we're comfortable with things that are evil, then the world is going to wonder how someone who claims to love God, who's righteous, cannot hate evil. Hypocrisy. Do you see what Paul's getting at here? If we don't hate evil, maybe we don't really love God. In other words, if we're going to love without hypocrisy, we first have to love God, and if we really love God, we have to hate the same things that God hates. What you don't have the freedom to hate, however, friends, we should note, is people. You can hate the sin, but you have to understand that God sees through the sin itself and loves the sinner. We're called to do the same thing. That's loving without hypocrisy. If we hate what is evil, it's obvious that we should love what is good, right? But that doesn't stop Paul from reminding us to cling to what is good. That's what he says, cling to what is good. And the imagery of clinging to something is captivating for me. You know what I mean? I mean, imagine that you were the survivor of a shipwreck and all you had to keep you afloat in the middle of the ocean is this floating piece of wood. Now, don't think for a second that you wouldn't cling to that piece of wood, because your very survival would depend on your ability to cling to it. There's a sense of desperation. You know what I mean? There's a sense of desperation that's implied in the word cling, and that's exactly what Paul tells us to do. Cling... To what is good. When you're floating in an ocean of sin, when the current of your flesh nature turns into a riptide that's trying to drag you back to a sin that you've tried to walk away from, when your friends are like an irresistible gravitational force that beckons for you to join them in some type of sinful behavior, cling to what is good. That's what Paul tells us to do. Paul knew. Those struggles. And I don't doubt for a second that he went through some of them himself. And I know that he saw others going through those struggles as well, where a believer was trying to resist sinning. But resistance just seemed futile. And that's why he said to the church in Corinth, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. And that word joins, by the way, is the same Greek word that Paul uses here. It gets translated as cling. He continued writing to them, encouraging them to flee immorality. In the next verse, verse 18, cling to the Lord, flee immorality. I think you probably get the picture. It requires action, proactive action on our part. So this is what it means to love without hypocrisy. This is what the world should see when they look at our lives. Hate what's evil, cling to what is good. When this type of love, when agape love is the force that motivates our actions, we grow like crazy in our walk with the Lord by using our spiritual gifts in accordance with that love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that that you have replaced our old nature with a new nature that should be characterized by unconditional, agape, selfless love. We thank you for that love that you have toward us, Lord. And it's because of that love that we have this new nature. Lord, I just pray that you will teach us to hate what you hate and to love what you love and to cling to to you, to cling to what is good when it seems like we don't have any way out from sinning. Lord, you told us that we will always have a way out of sinning. And that's by clinging to you, Lord. Teach us to do that so that the world, when they look at us, will see Christ-likeness in us because of what you've done. We thank you so much for this time, Lord. We pray that you will bless and preserve this message I for. People.